the path doesn't have to be straight. We have a lot more information that we can Value courage. You're listening to the We Get Real AF podcast, exploring the future with trailblazing women and girls in emerging tech, XR, AI, and futurism. Science and technology are reshaping our world at lightning speed. Engage in conversations that'll spark your curiosity and challenge what you thought possible. Inventing tomorrow starts now. And here are your hosts, Vanessa Alava and Sue Robinson. Welcome to the We Get Real AF podcast. Joining us today is Courtney Harding, CEO of Friends with Holograms. Courtney, welcome to the show. Oh, great. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Likewise, thank you. Likewise. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Oh, wow. So I have done a lot of different things, but primarily right now I make virtual reality and augmented reality. Um, A lot of what I do has a focus on social change and social good. And I really try to focus on solving client problems and making VR that is really impactful and really moves the needle. And I also spend a lot of time just like evangelizing about the technology because it is still so new. So I do spend a lot of time just like putting people on headsets for the first time, showing them things, explaining how VR works. Um, so yeah, it's it's like all VR all the time over here. That's awesome. You know, Sue and I, as you know, uh, work for a um, content development uh, company, it's a media production company that's a content developer for VR and AR experiences. And we always talk about how it never gets old to see somebody in a headset for the first time. No, it's really fun and exciting. And um, I mean, I've done things like you know, I showed everyone in my family a piece that I'd done, and it sparked this really huge debate, which was really exciting. Um, I've put people of all ages. I mean, I've put, like, kids in VR. I've put friends in VR. I've put uh, strangers in VR. And it's it's really amazing to see the reactions, right, to see people get so into the piece that I'm showing them. And I had an experience a couple months ago where I was getting my hair colored and cut, and I was talking to my the guy who, who does my hair, and I I happened to have my VR headset in my purse and he was just, he and I were just chatting about VR. And I was like, Oh, I can show you something. Cause you know, the hair dye's got to sit on my hair. He was like, Oh yeah, sure. I'll take a look. And I thought he would do like five minutes of the piece just to check it out. And he did the whole piece and he got super into it. And I was actually kind of worried. I was like, Oh my God, is my hair going to fall out? <laughs> Cause he's just like so immersed in this world. Um, but it's a piece on uh, child welfare workers. And he's of course like a cool downtown Manhattan hairdresser. He's never, been in that world. Um, but he even got out of the piece and he was like, well, I made this decision because, you know, the mom said this, but I felt like her boyfriend was maybe a better parent. So I kind of wanted to leave the kid in the house, but I had a concern about such and such and like really got into and analyzed and took very seriously this training piece that he had no practical use for. Um, and that's the type of stuff that gets me really excited. Like people cry doing that piece and doing other pieces. And I'm just like, so thrilled. About it. it sounds crazy, but that emotional reaction to me is really what moves the needle a lot of the time. We know the piece you're talking about, Courtney, it's the Accenture piece yeah. correct, for training social workers. And, um, I agree. It is so impactful. We've both seen it. Do you feel like VR is best suited to, 
skills training and, uh, you know, human interrelation training, like the Accenture piece. I mean, a lot of times we hear about it in relation to hard skills training and learning how to operate equipment and machineries, but um, for creating empathy, is that really the true sweet spot for the technology? I think it's good for a lot of things. I mean, certainly for sort of empathy training, communication training, relational training, I think it does very well for that. Um, I also think that practical training, especially if you're training something that is potentially dangerous or difficult um, or something that's not easy to train on, uh, is a great use case. So I've seen a lot of use cases around, here's how you operate heavy machinery safely, right? Like I don't want someone who's never operated a piece of heavy machinery all of a sudden just getting in there and being like, oh, okay, I'll figure this out, right? Like, you know, I think there's so many different use cases in training and then external to training. Um, although training is my my primary focus, that I think it's hard to say like VR is is only good for one thing. I think it's good for a lot of different things. I think the the core for me is always what is the problem that it's solving? Is it doing it in a way that is you know fairly realistic? Um, because that if it's realistic, it's going to imprint imprint itself on your brain, and you're going to have this like muscle memory from from having done it. Um, and is it well done? So is it like well designed? Is it designed intuitively? Does it look good? Um, you know, is it, you don't want things that are cartoonish unless that's sort of your whole point, because that's going to destroy like the realism. You don't want things that are unrealistic interactions. So if you're trying to decide, you know, should I ask this person A, B, or C, you want to actually ask that person. You don't want to like use a controller to select a question because that's not intuitive and that's not how we communicate. Um, so yeah, I feel like there's, there's no like one sort of vertical that it's best suited for, um, which is really exciting because that opens up a lot of different things to, to try and to learn. We talk about, uh, Sue and I all the time about how this year we feel is the year for people to adopt if they haven't already. And, you know, we were always educating our clients that VR and AR have been such a um, entertainment and gaming solution for so long that it is changing perceptions and to teach them exactly what you just said, that there are so many use cases and it can really be used across the board. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, I feel like this is a mistake I made early on that I've since sort of acknowledged and corrected. Um, and partially this is just a function of there not being a ton of good use cases when I started in 2016, 2017. So I would go into companies and say, look at this really cool thing called, you know, under the water where you could, you know, be underwater in a, what was it, like a whale swam over your head? I think it was called the balloon. It was, it, it was and is a tremendous piece and it's well done and it's really compelling but it's it's hard for somebody who's like thinking about training to see that piece and kind of apply it to training it just sort of puts vr in the space of like, oh yeah what a cool fun thing to have at a party or fun for games um and so really i try very hard to show people stuff that is sort of contextually appropriate um because yeah people if they if the first thing they see in vr is like a game then they're going to get stuck in the mind space like, oh, it's for gaming, right? And not see the applications in training or marketing or anything like that. Right. I think that's a difficult thing sometimes for people to break their um, image in their heads of, of what VR really is. 
I agree completely. And we run into this with even traditional videos sometimes where if people don't see exactly what they would need in their head, they can't get it. They're not like, oh, well, these people can accomplish so much, like so much creatively. Look at what they've done. But they can't say, oh, these people can shift gears to create exactly what I need. So I, we always find it very, very interesting. But it is client education and showing things that are um, somewhat, uh, you know, analogous to what they create or what they do in order for them to relate and get it. Yeah. Are there, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, are there things that you find clients say, I want to use VR for X and you're like, no, that's a terrible idea. Are there certain things that come <laughs> up regularly? Um, oh, I don't want to like call anyone out. So I like to start with the problem statement with all my clients. So you know, with like the Accenture piece, for example, to go back to that, um, you know, they came to us and they said, how do we stop? How do we decrease turnover among caseworkers? Because it's really high. How do we standardize training? Because caseworkers now train on the job and they get partnered with more senior caseworkers. And the problem with that is a turnover is so high that you don't have a lot of senior caseworkers around. And B, some senior caseworkers are amazing. And some senior caseworkers are just kind of okay. And it's kind of the luck of the draw who you get, right? So if you get a senior caseworker who's just kind of okay, you as a junior caseworker will be set back, right? And the families you work with will be set back and, and all of this. So the problem they gave us was like kind of a high level problem and they wanted to use VR to do it. And they allowed us to kind of iterate from there and come up with the piece that we built. So... You know, I think when clients have too narrow a focus, that's when things get tricky. If a client comes to me and says, I want to teach somebody to do X, Y, Z in VR, generally there's a way to do it that's compelling and interesting. Sometimes you don't need it. Like there are plenty of things that could be videos, right? So if you are talking about a very simple skill, um, how do you uh, put tab A in slot B? That doesn't really need to be VR. Right. But anything that's more sort of like a bigger problem around communication or, or empathy or bias or anything like that, if you just kind of come up with this broad idea of like, here's what we need to solve, we can more likely than not come up with a way to solve it in VR in a way that's that's pretty interesting. What about um, in the era of the Me Too movement and more more and more coming to light about sexual harassment? Um, do you see VR as being a valuable tool for training for that kind of awareness in the workplace? Oh, absolutely. So we have a project we're doing right now that is about um, reading body language. So, you know, I've, I've been through a lot of sexual harassment trainings in my life. Most of them are terrible. Um, and the issue with the way that a lot of them are, are deployed is that they are like online learning courses or maybe they're classes, but generally it's like, you watch some videos, you take some quizzes, and they're not interactive. And because of the way that they're presented, the scenarios have to be really over the top, right? So you're not going to see in the real world as many scenarios where, you know, somebody, it's like somebody does a Harvey Weinstein type of a thing, right? Like that's thankfully pretty rare. What you see a lot more is somebody is out with a male colleague, the male colleague starts sort of you know, maybe hitting on them a little bit or saying things that are slightly inappropriate and, and they feel like trapped and uncomfortable. 
And one thing that we can teach men to do is read women's body language so that they know, okay, I'm making this person uncomfortable and I need to stop and change the subject. And that's something you can really only do in VR because of the immersion and the proximity. So basically the idea is you put on the headset, you go through the experience, you start chatting with your colleague, um, you ideally you start noticing them getting more and more uncomfortable. You know, they're kind of like looking down, they're kind of shrinking back, they're sort of uh, speaking unsurely. And then in sort of the correct way to go through it, you sort of notice that and then you switch topics. You start talking about baseball or, or something, the weather, something neutral, because you recognize the discomfort and you backpedal and it's fine. Um, so that's kind of what we're really interested in. We're also really interested in, in building something about helping women stand up for themselves in situations where they're marginalized or they're in a meeting and somebody's taking credit for their idea, which I think happens a lot. Um, and then, yeah, just helping people realize, you know, helping people feel like they're actually in that situation. And I think VR, well, I disagree with the idea that VR can make you feel like you're someone else. Like, I don't think putting on a VR headset all of a sudden will make me like a different person than I am. That just won't work. Um, what I do think is very possible in VR that's not possible in other mediums is meeting people where they are and making them feel uncomfortable or feel empathy or feel something on their level. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I'd love it. I think this is a nice segue into this next topic of VR is only as useful as it is immersive. And we kind of started talking about it earlier a little bit, but something that you and your company do very well is the storytelling aspect and making it feel as real and as organic as possible. Can you explain why the quality of immersive experiences are so crucial? Oh my gosh. So a huge challenge with VR is because people have seen so little of it, first impressions really matter. So I've talked to so many people who had a bad first impression in VR and it has completely colored the way that they think about it. So, you know, I watch a YouTube video that was poorly shot and that doesn't make me think, oh, all videos are terrible, close down YouTube. Um, but for some reason, I guess because VR is really new and it's still the sort of edge case technology. And for some reason, people have like very strong opinions about it. Um, you know, it's it's really bad when you get someone to have a negative first experience in VR. So we always try to make it very cinematic and, you know, really high quality. We are very specific about, you know, camera heights, camera angles, making sure that it's very smooth and it's well-produced and, you know, making it really good quality because I think there's a lot of people trying to make VR who don't understand the basics of it. And I 100% get behind people experimenting. That's how I learned. That's how people learn. That's how you should learn. Like go get a cheap 360 camera and shoot some stuff. But that's very different than actually, you know, showing it to other people and having it as a final product. So I think that, yeah, I think the stakes are just still really high and it worries me when people think they can kind of like just jump in and make VR. That's, that's something that I always get a little concerned about when someone's like, Oh yeah, I did video. I can do VR. And it's like, no, you, you can't like, that's very different. You can learn hundred percent. No one is born knowing any of this, but I think someone just sort of making that jump is, is kind of a lot. What is the number one misconception that clients have about VR that you have to dispel when you meet with them? 
So I think a lot of them think it's more expensive than it actually is. Um, it's it's funny. It's there's like a weird. It's like doing VR is basically kind of like being on the prices right sometimes. When you have one group of people who think like, oh, I can get this amazing piece for $20,000, which you can't. And another group of people who think, oh, this costs a million dollars, which it doesn't have to. Um, and people don't understand VR budgets. Um, we have a budgeting tool that we use that's this really intense spreadsheet and you know, we are super transparent about how we budget everything. And there are some overlaps with like regular production costs and VR production costs, right? Like hiring an actor for a day is the same cost in VR, not in VR. But obviously there's tons of other considerations that go into it. And, uh, you know, I feel like people also have an idea that like you can cut corners, you can do things more cheaply. Um, and, and it's just, I mean, you, you can, but it's not going to work. Like you're going to get a really poor quality product. And I feel like people get too hung up on sometimes the cost to the exclusion. Like you get what you pay for. It's hard. I think with a lot of companies because their budgets are so sort of specific and tied to certain timelines. So that's where it gets challenging is for me having to explain, okay, yeah, you'll spend a little bit more now, but the return on investment you're going to get is like 10x bigger. And here's why. And a lot like some people get it and some don't. Definitely. No, I, I we struggle with the same thing in our, you know, because we do similar things. Um, we do the same thing where it's client education and explaining that because it is such a different medium and to make it as immersive as possible. And with that immersion, people are going to feel more of that reality, that sense of reality when they're in the experience that that adds to it. That's what makes it what it is. So we completely get that. Absolutely. So I'm really intrigued by your career path. And I'm wondering, Courtney, when you, when you started out years ago, did you ever think you would be an entrepreneur? Not really. I mean, I, I had this very strange ziggy zaggy career path. So when I was in high school, I went to high school in Pacific Northwest in the 1990s. Um, so it's giving my age away, whatever. But I got really interested in like Riot Girl and activism. And I started volunteering for an organization that would like register young voters. And I kind of was like, oh, if I just run these voter registration tables, I can go to any concert I want. Because who's going to be mad at like a bright eyed, bushy tailed young teenager trying to get people to vote? So I started this sort of little group in Portland where I'm from that, you know, we just ran all these voter registration tables and then we would do benefit concerts for like local nonprofits. And then I went to college uh, to do political science. I kind of thought I would do that. Um, and then I, I got into music journalism kind of around the same time. Um, I did college radio. And then basically I went back to Portland where I'm from after college, worked in politics for a while, kind of burned out on it got this opportunity in the music journalism space, took it thinking it would just be like sort of a fun thing to do. Um, and then like got into grad school for public policy, was like, okay, that seems like a safer bet. Moved to New York, got more into music journalism. So I've always like bounced around and bounced back and forth. So yeah, I mean, I really, I was, I was a writer and an editor at Billboard for four years after graduate school. And then 
that was when like music technology was getting really big. So Spotify came to the U.S. in 2011. That's when I left Billboard. And I started working with music tech companies. So I was running a consultancy on my own, working with international music tech startups that wanted to launch in the U.S. So that was kind of entrepreneurial. Um, and I was working for really tiny startups. So I was often in, in leadership roles there just because, you know, I was a team of 10 people like on a series A. Um, and then I went to work for a small VR production company. And then, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I've always kind of liked to start things and do things and run things. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, it's definitely been, I, I think, you know, people have asked me in the past, like, how do you sort of thread all these things together? And I think the thing that I can do pretty well is um, live at the intersection of art and commerce. Because I know a lot of people that are really brilliant creatives and so, so good at that. And I don't consider myself nearly close to that, but like these people cannot function in sort of a more corporate environment, right? Like I've dealt with these directors who are just the most brilliant artists and I love them to death and they're friends of mine. And like, if you ask them to show up for a 9am meeting, they'll just like shut you down. They'd be like, no, I don't do that. <laughs> right. Like they can't like put on a suit and go to a 9am meeting. And on the other side of things, you know, I can put on a suit and go to a 9am meeting. I don't like it, but I can do it. Um, and so I can kind of like pull together like the commerce thread, the art thread, the, you know, pulling everyone together and kind of managing everything and letting other people have sort of their expertise and create spaces for their expertise to be really valued. So, you know, I, I think about what I want the vision for Friends with Holograms to be as we grow and really thinking about like, I would just love to employ the New York VR scene, right? Like there's so many brilliant, awesome, talented, cool, interesting, smart people in New York making VR. And if I could just be like sort of the pipeline for them to do work and to do interesting work, or even, you know, even if it's like corporate work, that'll fund their art projects and have this like amazing community of, of smart, talented makers and just be like the sort of vector between that. Like that's, if I think about really what I want friends with holograms to be, it's that it's creating, you know, really groundbreaking, really game changing, immersive work that has a social good focus and using like the best people out there. I love that you said that because I think so much, um, so often people think to be in this space, you have to be a coder or you have to be very one side of your brain. And one of the things that Vanessa and I want to do with this podcast is really speak to a wide audience, including young women who are interested in technology, but who may be more the creative side of their brain than the, um, you know, coding side. And what I'm hearing you say is that, is that this technology needs both. Yeah, I mean, listen, if you put a gun to my head and ask me to do something in Unity, like, okay, I'm dead. <laughs> right? Like, I, I, I think you should know a little bit. Like, I know enough to talk to devs. Um, and I've taken, like, a couple of online courses just so I know, like, the absolute fundamentals of what is and is not possible. And I think that's a, a good place to come from just because you, you kind of need to know the limits and the bounds and everything like that. Beyond that, you know, one thing that really annoys me when people have conversations about women in STEM, which, you know, should be encouraged, like women should be encouraged to pursue those roles, but the sort of creativity and humanity, uh, if all you're doing is encouraging people to sort of focus on this very narrow lane, 
um, you're going to lose a lot of really good ideas. And I see a lot of VR projects in particular that are built by people who have really great technical knowledge, but they can't tell a story to save their lives. And, you know, that's where, again, you need like the art and the commerce and the technology, like everything needs to kind of meet up. And if you have something that's too loaded on one side or the other, you're, you're not going to get a good product. So I would encourage people if they're interested, yeah, like if you want to learn to code, like learn to code, you'll make a bunch of money. Um, but I think a lot of these companies don't understand the need for creativity and people who know how to tell stories in 360. Um, and I think a lot of them are going to fall flat because they're just creating this content that, again, it's technically really interesting and really well done, but no one's going to engage with it and watch it because there's no story. Well, and to add to that point, you need somebody to also be able to articulate the tech in like jargon that the layman person will understand. Like the things that we talk about, you know, our programmers in the back are, are really nitty gritty. And when they get excited, they get nitty grittier. Oh, sure. <laughs> so if they're in front of somebody who doesn't really get it, some, again, we're introducing VR to people that sometimes most of the time it's their very first time in a headset that alone, you know, it blows their mind, but blows their mind in a way that sounds, you know, very intimidating. So you need somebody that can take the technical and explain it in a way that feels safe to a person who's trying this for the first time. Safe and relatable. Yeah. A hundred percent. And you need someone who can sort of take whatever's being demoed and make it applicable to the person who's watching the demo. So I had this experience a couple of weeks ago where, you know, I was at an event and I was sort of helping out with some demos and this really smart, really, really smart young guy came up and he was showing someone his, um, his demo that he built in uh, a HoloLens. And he just got so technical about it like it was a non-technical audience and he was way too technical and just didn't make the connection. And at a certain point I just jumped, I was like, is it okay if I jump in? And he was like, yeah, yeah, fine. And I just basically jumped in and I was like, Hey, you know, you work for an airline. And so here's how this data visualization can help you do X. And here's how this can help you tell the story. And you're really just kind of pulling everything together. And that was what kind of got a good response. And then you know, like they can bring him in and he can talk to their technical teams and their technical teams can like geek out with him and then everyone's happy. But anything that is too technical for a non-technical audience right off the bat, you're just going to lose everyone, right? So yeah, I totally think that you need people that can speak that language for a broader audience. And there are some technologists who really can do that. Like one of my closest collaborators, and he's a dear friend of mine, like he's a creative technologist. So he's like, super technical. And I've watched him go way off the deep end. And I'm just like, okay, dude, I'm going to go walk around the block and let you do your thing. Um, but he can also explain to people in a way that is very digestible. Um, I have a couple of friends like that. That's not the majority of, of developers that I've at least run across. I think that's such a great point. And I think um, you can scare people off of a really great technology if it sounds a lot harder than what they need to know. I mean, oh, yeah. somebody has to know how to build it and, and do all the back end stuff, but 
the client just needs to know that it's going to work for them every time, that it's going to be intuitive and easy, and that it's going to tell their story in a really memorable way or train their their workforce in a, in a really, again, memorable way. So what is one thing that um, that the technology doesn't do now, that VR doesn't do now, that you want it to do, and maybe you're predicting that it will do soon? Like, right now, VR is a very... <laughs> Isolating is not the right word for necessarily, although it can be, and that's something I can talk about in a minute. Like, VR does not take into account everything else that is going on around you. So, you know, I can be in VR and have a very different type of reaction to the person who's doing the VR experience next to me, and there's no way to sort of tell what my reaction is. Um, I also think I've seen a few use cases where people sort of incorporate other senses into VR, and I think that is a huge push forward. So I would love to have more VR that is has more biometric feedback, um, that collects more sort of biometric data, and um, allows you to experience things with other senses. So one of the very first things that we ever scoped um, at Friends with Holograms, this was a couple of years ago now, was we did all the creative for a piece on how to lift a box with correct form in VR. Oh my okay. God. So boring. <laughs> Very interesting. That's what the client wanted. And we were like, okay, how do we make this not awful? So we basically rigged up something where you had all these sensors on you and you had to mimic the movement of the person lifting the box and we kind of gamified it. And then, you know, the, there was sort of feedback. So if you rounded your back in a certain way, which you're not supposed to do, um, then you got like a little zap. Um, and then you kind of got, rewarded for having all of your body in correct alignment as you lifted the box. Yeah, listen, it's not going to win Tribeca Film Festival. <laughs> but it was interesting because at least it gave people sort of a multi-sensory experience, right? And it allowed people to correct their behavior on the go and sort of get that immediate feedback. Um, so like, that's the type of stuff I get excited about. You know, I think touch in VR is really interesting. So right now, I think in VR touch is either like very sexual, right? If you're in the sort of VR sex workspace or like very scary, right? So I've certainly messed with friends of mine that are doing horror VR pieces by like sneaking up behind them, uh, which I don't recommend doing unless you're pretty good friends with someone. That could be very um, jarring for sure. It was super jarring, man. I like scared, really scared a few people. And I've had, I almost took a swing at my friend who I was doing walk the plank and he like pushed me off. And I just like, really kind of lost it on him um and so yeah I mean so so but there's no sort of like playful touch in VR so yeah more of that type of stuff just like more I don't know it's this is going to be a big year for VR absolutely um but I'm definitely excited to see like how do we broaden everything out and how do we make it more multi-sensory and just kind of go from there it's interesting that you say that because my um youngest daughter and I were talking about this this afternoon um and about the idea of maybe attending a concert in VR. And she was like, you know, I don't think I'd want to do that because such a big part of a concert is the interaction with the people around you and maybe meeting somebody new and making friends with them and just sort of the vibe. And, and so when you use the word um, isolating, I mean, there is that, right? That, that's a, that is a kind of constraint that virtual reality has now that we'll have to, I don't know how we get around that in the future. 
So I think the concert piece is interesting. I think live music, and I actually originally kind of was thinking about like, oh, live music is the perfect use case for VR. And I, I generally don't think that anymore. I think live music is very much about like being around people and being in a space. Um, I think a lot of what draws people to see live shows is also sort of the exclusivity of it, right? So you have to be there and it's a specific place and time. Um, I haven't seen anything. I mean, I've, I've seen a lot of VR concert uh, pieces. I haven't seen anything that I've loved, to be perfectly honest. I think a lot of them make the mistake of moving everyone around and putting everyone at these sort of odd angles. Um, and that's kind of weird. Like, it's kind of weird to just be like, oh, I'm right in front of the stage or like I'm standing right next to the singer. Like, that's very unnatural. Um, so, yeah, the live concert thing in VR, I haven't, I'm not as big on and it does feel isolating. I think what we try to do with our stuff is make it, even though it is single user, you are engaged, right? So that's another big part of the concert stuff. You're, you're not really, I mean, you're just watching, you're a passive observer, Right. And even like I went, I was traveling a few weeks ago and I went to this really awesome rock show and I was in, I was in Prague. So like, I didn't know, you know, I don't speak Czech. So I'm just standing there. I can't understand what anyone's saying. And I don't know anyone because I was just there for a few days and I was, I was just like hanging out, you know, standing in the back, drinking a beer. And even then it was, my interaction was minimal, but it was still like, I was applauding and I was kind of moving around. And, and even those baseline interactions, you don't get, in VR. So I feel like, you know, the, the way we try to design, a lot of it is like you're talking or you're, you're gazing or you're interacting somehow and people are addressing you and they're interacting with you. And another huge mistake that I see is, you know, the user is, the camera is the user, right? And people forget that all the time. And so I've seen pieces, I saw a piece recently that was generally pretty well done, except the the camera for part of it like you were in the middle of the table so everyone's sitting around you and then the perspective was like you are sitting on the table which like people don't do in real life you know i don't like passive vr pieces where no one interacts with you um unless it's like for a very specific creative purpose so someone was showing me some footage he shot um and at one point there were people in there and the people were just like looking at the the user, the camera with like hostility. And I was just like, I, I don't feel comfortable in this, right? Like, I'm like, why are these people all glaring at me? Um, and so you have to have that perspective and that interactivity. You need to always remember that like the user has to do something, right? Even no matter what it is, they need to do something. Right. And I think that there is somewhat a time and place for those more isolated, and we're talking about potential enterprise applications, right? You want that person to be engulfed and immersed in that, you know, no distractions type of environment. You know, you, you want that as opposed to a concert, which is more of a social atmosphere. And yeah, I don't, I'm with you guys. I don't know how we, you know, if there's a resolution or we combat that because it is, it's, you know, even you're in Prague and it's a limited interaction. It's still memorable because you're in Prague and you're hearing people speaking in different accents and it adds to that experience, you know? So I, as much as, yeah, you could be a passerby in a, in a VR experience. 
at a concert, it's not the same as actually being there and feeling the bass and and, and smelling the smells yeah. and you know all the things right that make a concert a concert and live music live yeah. music. The yeah, energy. yeah, absolutely. Hey everybody, Sam McLean here from Inphase Audio, audio producer and editor for the We Get Real AF podcast. I'm so glad to be a part of this podcast, encouraging women and girls to step into emerging technologies and celebrating the accomplishments of those who do. Make sure to follow me on Instagram at McLean Sounds or check out my website, inphase.biz. Thanks for listening. So what are some questions, Courtney? Say somebody's listening to this show and they're a small business or medium-sized business and they're thinking about exploring virtual reality um, for training. What are some questions that those folks should be asking themselves right out of the gate? So we ideally come in with two questions answered. Um, the first question is, what is your biggest challenge? And the second question is, what is your budget? So we can work with different price ranges. We have a, we have a floor for an engagement and that's just so that, you know, we, we can cover our costs and we can you know, keep the business running. Um, and then obviously the, the higher you go, the, the more interesting stuff we can do. Um, but we need, we need a number off the bat to start with and it can be a range. It doesn't have to be like an exact fixed budget, but we, we need to have that clarity pretty much up front. And then we need an idea, right? We need a problem to solve. So, um, you know, we had a client call us maybe a month or two ago and she basically had been brought on as the head of human resources for a large company. And the problem she was trying to solve is that all of the senior leadership who were non-white were leaving. And she needed to figure out, you know, is this unconscious bias? And, and you know, she did a lot of research and, and she found these sort of situations where there were microaggressions and that was causing people to leave. And so, you know, she was like, well, I want a VR situation that helps people understand how to deal with microaggressions. And I was like, awesome, we can run with that. So I don't like it when clients come in being too prescriptive, because unless you have someone on the team who is a really experienced VR director, producer, whatever, um, you know, creative for VR is pretty different than creative for flat video. So we've had a lot of experiences where a client will say, okay, well, we did this video, we want a VR version of it. And I have to say to them, well, that's not going to work because you're doing things in this, in the story that will work fine in, in a flat video, but it won't work in VR. So it's really, you know, the, the sort of more leverage we can have, the better. Um, and we're really collaborative. Like we work very closely with all of our clients and we're constantly collaborating with them and they're the subject matter experts, right? Like we're just the VR people. Um, so it's really about, um, you know, working with them to solve this overarching problem. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's where clients really need to start thinking is, you know, targeting a problem, getting the budget together and then reaching out to us. Um, and we can really iterate from there. All right. So we're going to ask you in this lightning round um, to do a few things for us. Some of them are going to be questions and some of them are just going to be exercises. So the first one I would consider an exercise. So finish, <laughs> finish this sentence. Women are. I think women are angry right now. Um, I think 
you know, I, I don't want to get super political on here, but um, I will say when Elizabeth Warren dropped out, uh, I was really upset. And, you know, I was a fan of hers and I liked her politics, but more than anything, it was really the fact that she was this incredibly qualified, incredibly prepared, incredibly hardworking woman. And she just, you know, there was so much sexism around the reasons people didn't like her. And you, you didn't really hear people say, oh, well, I disagree with her plan for this, or I think she's, her position on this is bad. It was really, you'd hear men say, oh, she's just like a high school principal, or I don't like how she speaks, and I can't stand the way she talks. And, and this really sort of awful, sexist, negative stuff that was out there. And I, I feel like right now, you know, I, I was asked to do a piece for a client to help women stand up for themselves. And I really was like, I don't want to do this because I want to turn this around and I want to make this about, yeah, fine. Women can learn how to say, don't interrupt me, but you know what? Men can also learn how to not interrupt us, right? Like men can learn how to not do bad things and I don't think we should always be in the position of fighting and saying like, you know, gee, I'm really sorry. I know you didn't mean to interrupt me, but you know, it hurt my feelings. So can you just let me talk rather than just saying like, no, like don't, don't interrupt me. Like that's not okay. And just setting that through social norm. Um, and yeah, I feel like women are just at this point, or a lot of the women that I know are just really kind of over it. It's really interesting you mentioned that. And I kind of, I love your honesty and transparency. You can get however you'd like. That's what we, we this show is all about. So thank you for that. It's interesting. In many ways, we've we've come a long way. And then we're just scratching the surface in, mm-hmm. in certain areas. And, you know, I think it's sometimes geographical, too, and, and regional, depending on where you are, um, on how people interpret that direct, like, you know, don't interrupt me. You know, I'm a human you're a human, forget like, you know, gender here, it's just respect. And some people expect you, depending on where you are geographically, again, to say, oh, excuse me, please. And it's like this political correctness of like trying to be polite, but also the, and it's like, no, screw that. Because you know what? A guy can say it, no big deal and move on. But a woman says it that way. And, you know, and she gets words come to mind, yeah. right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and yep. it's so wrong. And I have encountered this not only with men, but with women. Mm-hmm. <laughs> with women. And that I feel is like the most insulting because like men have been doing this forever and it's been swept under the rug. And but for a woman to do that, you're like, really? Well, really? Well, I thought we were on the same side here, you know? So it's just really yeah. interesting. I think that leads really well into our second lightning round question. Courtney, what are three pieces of advice that you would give your younger self? Oh my God, I love this question. Um, <laughs> buy Apple stock. Uh, <laughs> That's good. You know, then I'd be wealthy and I wouldn't have to, <laughs> as much as I love doing this, I would love to be doing this on a beach somewhere rather than in New York City. Um, never, never stop asking for things, right? Um, and I feel like, at a certain point, I stopped asking for things and demanding things. And I think that happens to a lot of women. I think women are socialized to sort of be very meek and very kind of like, oh, well, if you wouldn't mind, would it be okay? Right? Like these, these, these ways of asking for things that are not direct. I do think that one thing I was better at when I was younger is, um, you know, asking for things. So I think that 
Oh wait, this is, I reversed this. This is advice a younger version of myself would give my adult. <laughs> um, okay, so whatever, fine. Still, it's still good. It's still good. It is. Um, also like, I the third one is probably like, don't wear Chuck Taylor uh, All-Stars every day because it will just wreck your feet. <laughs> <laughs> a good practical when you're tip. Old, you really regret wearing Chuck Taylors every single day. Life lessons. That's so funny. <laughs> it, you know, you're, you reminded me um, about asking for things. My mom used to tell me when I was a kid, always ask because if you don't, you've already made the decision for them. Totally. And I thought that was great advice. And you're right. We have to keep reminding ourselves of that our whole lives because for some women, for, for some reason, I think it's harder for us as women. Mm-hmm. The totally. worst somebody can say is no. Yes. And then what? You continue and you move on. And you ask the next question. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What is your current favorite application of tech for good? So there's a really interesting, so this isn't VR, but I think it's fascinating. So there's another startup that was at South by last year um, called What Three Words. And it's basically helping people who are off the grid kind of map themselves. So, you know, there's huge populations of people that are very isolated and very rural and maybe um, don't have like systems in place to get things delivered to them or, or to let people know where they are. And when you look at like nomadic tribes um, that are kind of constantly moving, like helping those people find like fixed places, I think is really interesting. So what three words is this like random generator for all of these different um, locations. And I just think what they're doing is really, really interesting in terms of like, helping people find their locations and sort of claim their locations. Um, and I think especially for people that are sort of like housing insecure or location insecure, or maybe they're just nomadic, like giving them the ability to um, have a fixed place is really interesting. So thinking of this in the context of people that are like homeless, um, you know, if I'm a person experiencing homelessness and I call for services, like what location am I gonna give them, right? And so if I can have some sort of fixed location um, that is easy to remember and that is kind of universally known that I can give give someone who's trying to help me or I'm asking for help, like that to me is really interesting. So that's one that I've just been thinking about a lot. Again, it has nothing to do with VR, but I, I think that it's it's just kind of interesting and clever and I hope that it's really successful. I love that. Um, I would love to find out if there's a, a woman involved with that startup. <laughs> right? Okay, next question. What issue do you most hope technology will resolve in the future? I'm really interested in using this technology for like visual communication. So I'll I'll give you a couple examples. So I have a, a close friend that I work with who is dyslexic and he's got this like really brilliant technical mind, but you know, the way he was taught as a kid was very structured and linear and he did very poorly in school and had really, really negative experiences because the way he learned was not sort of catered to. And I think that's changing, um, not fast enough. But I think if we can have experiences for like people that are visual learners or people that are interactive learners or, you know, there are a lot of people that are are functionally illiterate in certain parts of the world. And can we create experiences that are visually driven in order for them to be able to sort of communicate in, in certain ways? And I think 
this is something you see with a lot of younger people, like my, you know, the teenagers I know, they'll just text me emojis all day long, right? And they'll text each other emojis all day long. And so we're starting to see this trend towards like visual communication and, you know, something like TikTok versus Twitter is really interesting. Um, you know, the, the fact that Twitter is primarily sort of a, a, a word-based, lie-based, <laughs> propaganda-based platform um, that's something that my generation is doing versus TikTok, which is like, I mean, I'm sure there's like awful stuff on TikTok as well, but it's super visual and super video-based. Um, I feel like that's really interesting. And I feel like that's a different mode of communication than we're used to. And I gave a talk on this like last year and people were kind of freaking out and like, it's the end of books and it's the end of newspapers. And I'm like, no, it's not. Those, those things will continue to exist and be really valuable, but understand that like some people learn best from reading books and that's amazing. And some people learn best from building things and that's amazing. And some people learn best from like visual cues and that's amazing. And it's, it's not about taking away books or newspapers or magazines, because I, I like all those things and I learn from those, but it's really more about opening communication and learning up to people who have different modalities of doing it. I love that so much. And, you know, it, it it's so relevant to, to us because we talk about this literally all the time about being in a room and being inclusive of people that learn in different ways, that come from different backgrounds. And obviously, especially virtual reality for education is, is such a great use case. But to teach people that learn in different ways is such a, a tremendous opportunity. Um, but then to extend that even further, to have those people that are learning in those different ways, to be in the rooms making decisions for, you know, hardware development or software development or whatever it may be, just because you're getting that completely different perspective and they look at something just so vastly different from the way you do. And those are important views. Yeah, exactly. It takes all kinds of minds and especially technology is such a huge part of our lives and it determines so much of our lives that we need all kinds of minds creating that technology. Yeah, absolutely. All right. The next exercise, describe the future in one word. So, you know what? I'll go with unwritten. We, you know, we live in a time of extraordinary uncertainty and that is very, very difficult to deal with. But it's also really interesting because like things are so wide open. And I, I think about, you know, if 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, somebody had been like, oh, you're going to run a VR agency. I would have been like, what the, what the hell is VR? Like, what even is that? That sounds weird. Um, and you know, I think about this trend of like asking kids what they want to be when they grow up. And I understand it's rooted in like kids need to think about the future and whatever. But like the fact is most kids today, like the job they're going to have in 20 years hasn't been invented yet. And I think the fact that there is still so much iterating we can do in terms of building the future is a really valuable opportunity for those of us that have that consider like the ethics of technology and how do we build things that are sustainable and value positive or at least value neutral and, you know, not building these technology platforms that are actively harmful. Um, you know, like we have it within our power to determine at least some of the future in terms of how this technology could potentially be used. And like, there's a, there's a world where this technology gets all the humanity sucked out of it. And that world scares me. And if, if VR turns into something where there's just like, you know, it's all just 
CGI-based kind of simulations that aren't good or interesting or humane, like, if those folks win the battle, like, I'll just go, I'll go do something else. You know, the, the keeping the humanity and technology is really important. And I think if we see the future as something that is not entirely determined um, and that we have the agency to at least kind of determine some of it, then I think we put ourselves in a much better position than if we just kind of throw up our hands and we're like, yeah, whatever, it's all over. Right. We 100% agree with that. And I think that's a big reason why we wanted to start this show is because we want to bring all kinds of people into the conversation in order to have input, you have to first understand what the technology is. And that can be pretty daunting because it's changing exponentially. And if you're not, again, somebody who considers yourself at the core, a technologist, it could be easy to just be intimidated and check out and say, oh, I'm just going to trust the people who know how this stuff works to do the right thing with it. And that would be a very foolish and unfortunate thing to do. Okay. Last lightning round question. Fill in the blank, blank like a girl. Create. Yeah, create, like make like make stuff. One thing that kind of annoys me is um, I, I see people who like critique or they like VR or they think things are interesting, but they don't make things. And I think women are generally less encouraged to just create stuff. Um, and one of the best things I ever did for myself was get a 360 camera and they're really affordable. You know, they're like a couple hundred bucks for one that's actually not bad. And I just started making things. And most of them are terrible. Most of them will never see the light of day, but I learned what to do. And, you know, even if you make something that's not very good, you'll probably learn something. And I mean, I think the rise of like maker culture has been so good for everyone. Um, you know, I've taught a lot of people how to shoot 360. Um, and they come away with it, you know, like I'll, I'll teach someone how to shoot 360 and I'll put what they built in the headset and I'll say, look, here's your VR piece. And it kind of blows their minds because they were like, oh, this is so much easier than I thought it would be. But just to sort of break down and demystify all those barriers around technology. And, and one thing that drives me nuts is we have sort of a, a generation of people in the U.S. who, for some reason, they, they find technology very alienating and they put themselves in a position where, you know, oh, well, I don't, I don't get how it works. And, and it's like, learn, like, it's not, you know, again, you know, I don't know how to code anything, right. But I know kind of how things work and I can figure stuff out more or less. Um, and, and, you know, it, it's not that, you know, older people or certain people need to know how to like build, you know, build code a website, right. But they need to kind of know how to problem solve and not be intimidated by technology. And I, I find it so frustrating on so many levels when older people, and I feel like especially older women, are left out of the conversation because they could be doing interesting stuff and they could be creating, or they could at least be empowered to solve their own problems. And I see a lot of older women who just accepted this really passive role when it comes to technology. And that's just kind of not great. Like you should have an act, you should be an active participant in the things that are sort of factoring into your life. And, um, you know, the more I can encourage women to create, and even if it's just creating little things, like that's still incredibly important. So we just want to give you a chance to let our audience know how they can get a hold of you. So I am on all the social media platforms. Uh, you can find me personally at uh, Courtney, C-O-R-T-N-E-Y, Harding, 
on Twitter and on Instagram. Um, Twitter, I mostly tweet about VR and, and other stuff that's interesting. Uh, Instagram, I do some Instagramming about VR and a lot about my dog. Hologram Friend is our Friends with Holograms um, Twitter account. Uh, that's solely VR content. Um, our website is friendswithholograms.com. And yeah, you can follow me on LinkedIn. I'm based in New York. I love meeting people that are passionate about VR. I'm always, you know, I'm traveling a bunch or was traveling a bunch, but I'm always happy to meet people, have coffee with people and talk about this stuff. Cause I really do like, I love it. Like this stuff really lights me up and I love meeting people that are also interested in it and just sort of having brainstorming sessions with them and learning about what other people are doing and seeing other people's work. And, um, and yeah, I really want to, I mean, I, I, I always want to give attention to good creators, but I especially want to give attention to good creators who are women, non-white, non-binary, come from different backgrounds, like first gen, second gen immigrants, like, like all the people who have really different perspectives and are creating good stuff. Those are the people that I really, really want to highlight and see their work and give attention to. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty easy to find. I have a very SEO friendly name. Uh, so yeah, I mean, hit me up. <laughs> Sounds great. Well, Courtney, thank you so much for uh, visiting with us today. And please, please come back. We'd oh, love to chat with you and keep in touch with you. Uh, if you're ever in the Raleigh-Durham area, hit us up, please. Absolutely. Yes, thank you. We really enjoyed speaking with you today. Learned oh. Lots of great stuff. No, thank you guys. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of We Get Real AF. We're excited to bring you the voices of amazing women and girls who are shaping the future for good. Please help us spread the WeGraph mission of supporting women and girls in emerging tech and science. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at WeGetRealAF. And visit our website at www.wegetrealaf.com. Don't forget to like, comment, and to subscribe to the podcast. We also want to give a big shout out and thanks to Sam McLean for providing sound production for the show. You can find Sam on Instagram at McLean Sounds, that's M-C-L-E-A-N-S-O-U-N-D-S, and to our voiceover artist, Veronica Horta, for her show introduction. You can find Veronica on LinkedIn by searching for Veronica Horta, H-O-R-T-A. We'll meet you back here next time for another great conversation about high tech with cool women.